The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our Behind the Headlines discussion on democracy in an age of pandemic. A particular welcome to everybody who's joining us in the Zoom room and those of you who are tuning in on Facebook and through the Irish Central uh, uh, platform where we're also live streaming. It's a real pleasure to welcome our colleagues uh, from Columbia University because tonight's Behind the Headlines is in collaboration with the Society of Fellows and Heyman Centre for the Humanities at Columbia. And I'm absolutely delighted that my colleague and counterpart at the uh, Heyman, Professor Eileen Gululi, is joining us uh, from New York. So Eileen, it's lovely to see you and it's lovely to be running this event in partnership uh, with the Heyman. For us, this is such an important topic. Um, obviously, throughout the world, uh, governments are introducing measures to protect people from COVID-19. However, we need to be vigilant. Uh, we need to think about the longer term implications uh, of these measures. And we need to think about those who are experiencing pandemic differently. Uh, that's what our panel is going to be doing this evening. Uh, be looking at examples of how democracy can go disastrously wrong. So let me just introduce myself very quickly for those of you who don't know me. My name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities in Trinity College, Dublin in Ireland. And in the hub, we do three things. We uh, celebrate the excellence of uh, uh, the humanities. We uh, try to drive innovative approaches uh, by being very interdisciplinary uh, and we're going to see that in action tonight but we also believe passionately in public humanities and uh, this uh, uh, behind the headlines is a great example of that. So this is the 10th anniversary uh, for the hub and it's an anniversary year uh, we're never going to forget uh, but our behind the headlines are very much our signature um, uh, public humanities events. Uh, we want to draw on the long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities and to reflect on different issues in the media. We want to deepen understanding and combat uh, polarization. This evening wouldn't be happening without the John Pollard Foundation, so a big thank you to the John Pollard Foundation and to Stephen Vernon uh, for making this evening happen. Before I introduce our uh, panel to you, we've started to do a poll uh, at the beginning of these um, uh, Behind the Headlines. And our poll this evening should come onto the screen uh, for any of you who are joining us in the Zoom room. But basically, uh, the poll is, are you worried about new laws or regulations the government in your country, wherever you are, has introduced as a result of COVID-19. So you can say yes, no, or maybe. And I'll give you the results of the poll uh, after our uh, uh, speakers have, have finished. So please do participate. It's great when we uh, have everybody uh, answering the poll. Um, just a word or two about the format. Um, this is the third 
behind the headlines that we've done uh, virtually. Uh, the first was on plagues and pandemics, and then we did one on climate change and pandemics. And both of those are available uh, on, as podcasts if you'd like to, to look at them. So the format is the same in that our speakers each have nine minutes um, and then uh, we'll open the floor to uh, questions from the audience. Uh, we'd like you to submit your questions uh, via the Q&A function on your screen and I'll then read them out on your behalf. It's lovely if you say who you are and maybe where you're joining us from because this evening I know we've many many uh, uh, friends in the United States as well as across Ireland so do tell us uh, uh, who you are and uh, where you're joining us from and uh, uh, do ask your question. Anybody who's listening on Facebook can also uh, write a question in the comments section and we'll monitor those uh, as well if time allows. We also invite you to tweet. So um, if you could use the handle uh, at TLR Hub and the, and the hashtag Hub Matters. Uh, and let's see if we can uh, get some uh, excitement going uh, in, in the realm of, of Twitter. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our four speakers uh, in the order in which I'm hope they're going to speak. But as I said a moment ago, we are doing this virtually. Uh, we have had a number of technical issues already. So hopefully um, all of our speakers will be able to be with us and, and you'll be able to hear them. But don't worry, if things go wrong, uh, they'll, they'll come back and rejoin us. So hopefully our first speaker will be uh, Professor Ahuvia Kane, who is the Regis Professor of Greek here at Trinity and the Leventus Professor of Greek Culture. Um, uh, Ahuvia joined Trinity in 2019 and he had previously taught uh, at Oxford, Harvard, Northwestern and Royal at Holloway in London. So it's lovely to have Ahuvia here with us this evening. Our second speaker is Lilith Acadia, and Lilith is a Marie Curie co-fund fellow in the Trinity Long Room Hub, who is doing some really exciting work on pretext in the construction and concealment of ethical and policy stances, actions and identity. So you're very welcome, Lilith. Thank you for joining us uh, this evening. She had a cracking op-ed in her Times last week, so uh, uh, do read it if you haven't had an opportunity to do so. Our third speaker tonight is Seamus Khan. Uh, Seamus is Professor of Sociology at Columbia, where he's also Chair of the Department. He writes on culture, inequality, gender and elites. In 2018, he was awarded the Hans Zetterberg Prize from Uppsala University for the best sociologist under 40. And I remember that very well, Seamus, because uh, you were in Dublin when you got that wonderful news. Uh, you were a fellow at the Trinity Long Room Hub, and it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to reconnect uh, with uh, Seamus over uh, more recent weeks, and you're very welcome uh, this evening. Our Final uh, panelist is Professor Peter uh, Baldwin. He's Professor of History at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, where he's interested in the historical development of the modern state. His many books, but I think probably the most relevant this evening is entitled Disease and Democracy. The state faces AIDS in the developed uh, world. So uh, Peter, again, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, if I can simply invite Ahuvia uh, uh, to kick off our talks this evening, please, Ahuvia. Good evening and thank you everyone for uh, coming. 
Uh, I'm going to talk uh, for a few minutes about uh, 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 ancient uh, Greece and Athens and the plague there. And you may well wonder, uh, why should we look to the distant past uh, when we're talking about democracy and pandemic and our present uh, predicament? Uh, and uh, uh, so I'll, I'll spend a minute uh, saying something about uh, democracy and its relation to the past. They are inseparable. I'll then uh, say a few words uh, about uh, uh, Athenian uh, democracy and the plague in 430 BC. And then, uh, most importantly, uh, I'll try to uh, draw some lessons which are applicable to our uh, present uh, situation. Uh, so, uh, democracy in the past. Uh, many of you, all of you, will know that the founding fathers of American democracy, uh, Jefferson or uh, Madison, the father of the Constitution, were uh, of the view that uh, democracy had no need of the past, that it should only look to the uh, present and to an ever-renewing uh, future. But, of course, Jefferson and Madison themselves were the authors of the Constitution, and uh, when America, perhaps with some presidential uh, exceptions, uh, seek guidance in the future, what does it do? It looks precisely to the past, to the Constitution, which is simply to say that democracy and the past are very intimately uh, uh, associated. And with that in mind, I just want to say uh, a couple of words about the Great Plague of Athens, in 430 BC, uh, an epidemic that uh, more or less killed Athenian democracy and its leader, Pericles, although uh, not immediately. It took uh, uh, some uh, time for that to actually come to uh, bear. We all know about the Peloponnesian War between Athens and its allies and Sparta and its allies. And Sparta, being a land power, invaded Attica, the territory surrounding uh, Athens, uh, and on the advice of the leader, the general Pericles, many of the inhabitants of that territory uh, uh, withdrew into the uh, uh, city, into within the city walls. Uh, that created great congestion, uh, ideal conditions for a pandemic, which is exactly what happened, and it struck Athens uh, very severely. Uh, by most estimates, about a third of the population uh, 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 perished. We have some archaeological, more recent archaeological evidence for that, but our main source is the historian Thucydides. And one of the things he says, and this is very commonly cited, especially these days, he says, law and order broke down in Athens. And he explains uh, people did not think that they would survive or live to pay the price for their transgressions and uh, crimes. But I want to focus on another uh, comment by Thucydides, who, when he says, yes, the streets were strewn with corpses, perhaps not in the wealthy countries, but uh, in some parts of the world, it's been more difficult than in others. Um, but what Thucydides says is, at the time, even dogs and birds of prey did not scavenge on the corpses of the dead. Such was the severity of the plague. Now, as far as I know, this is not attested animal behavior. For example, during the uh, Ebola crisis recently, dogs did uh, excavate uh, or dig up uh, 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 victims of the uh, uh, pandemic or the epidemic and spread the disease. So if Thucydides' comment is not 
a factual report, what is it? It is, if you'll forgive me, uh, a literary illusion. Now, let me stress uh, uh, what I'm going to say, bear with me, is entirely political. It's not a, uh, a lesson in literature. But Thucydides is alluding to the cornerstone of ancient culture, which is Homer's Iliad, the war poem about the destruction of uh, uh, the, uh, brought by the Trojan War. And uh, what uh, 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 Homer uh, says is that many heroes died and uh, their uh, 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 souls went down to Hades, forgive me for that uh, literary uh, reference. Their bodies, this is a fact, became prey of dogs and uh, birds. This is uh, a fact of ancient warfare. What are we to learn from that? The horror, the horror in Homer is not simply the death of many, uh, what we could call the end of bare life, but because burial of the dead is one of the pillars of social existence. We, we do live with the dead, and because the dead lay unburied and prey to dogs and birds, the horror is in fact the death of social life and the undoing of social bonds. Now, Thucydides, I think, takes this a step, an important step further. The plague in Athens didn't just kill men. It did not just destroy Athenian society. The dead, it would seem from his comment, counted for absolutely nothing as if they did not exist, not only for their fellow citizens in democratic Athens, but for nature itself, for dogs and birds. And the lesson from Thucydides is that epidemics can destroy not just lives, not just society, but what we might think of as the very instincts of nature itself. Epidemics can change our very grasp of the world. Now, of course, the difference between Athens and COVID-19 is that, at least in the wealthy countries, corpses are not lying in the street, and law and order uh, by and large, has not broken down. In fact, with lockdown, we're probably even more obedient and compliant with the laws than ever before. But with the lesson of the past, we absolutely have to ask, does obedience to the law mean that democracy will survive? Does it mean that the foundations of democracy, and in fact, our basic understanding of nature will survive? And are we in any way justified in thinking that today we are in some way morally and socially more robust than in the past. Pandemics are great democratic levelers. They strike more or less at every one prime ministers to the homeless. Uh, in fact, at the great general Pericles and ordinary uh, Athenians in classical Athens. But pandemics are also the great levelers of democracy because they push our social lives towards what we might call a baseline of existence, towards what one philosopher, now this is not a philosophy discussion, but nevertheless, Michel Foucault calls this a biopolitics, a state of being in which the preservation of bare life and the control of bare life pushes aside other vital aspects of our social existence. Of course, it's very hard to pursue social existence if you don't have life itself, if, you're, if we are dead. Uh, but the example, I think, of Homer and Thucydides and the Athenian plague 
is that pandemics pose a threat to the full range of our existence, to life, to social life, and to the very way we see and think of the world. And so, as emergency staff and hospitals and research labs and economists and politicians, and all of us are uh, making heroic efforts, uh, no pun intended here, for survival, uh, we should remember that saving bare life and preserving our economies are only the very first hurdles that we face and that after we have prevailed, after that, the struggle to preserve everything, everything else that gives meaning to our democratic existence only begins. We have a very long way ahead of us and we're in it for the long haul. Thank you very much, uh, Ahuvia. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you for getting us off to such a great start. Uh, if I could turn now to Lilith, please. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to join this conversation. And taking off from Ahuvia's final point that preserving bare life and our economies is only the first hurdle. I'd like to propose some ideas for during the pandemic, but also afterwards, because the threats to democracy during the pandemic are the same threats as we face before and will face in the future. The difference now is that those in power can use the pandemic as a pretext for accelerating the attack on democracy and continuing certain attacks past the time when the uses of their measures make sense in the context of a pandemic. Naomi Klein's shock doctrine describes this concept that governments and businesses exploit the shock of a disaster to push through horrifying measures or profit from the panic in catastrophe capitalism. In such times of crisis like this pandemic, we need frameworks and tools to help us make sense of the chaos and evaluate new policies and see how the powerful exploit this shock, limit the extent to which they can exploit it. In our current COVID pandemic, consider the infringement of civil liberties and the expansion of corporate corruption. The first, infringing on civil liberties, is justified as disease prevention, and the latter, the corruption, as disease response. Public health experts will agree you need to relinquish some civil liberties to prevent the spread. You have to social distance, submit to tests and isolation, let authorities know with whom you are in contact. And economists agree that businesses and our economies need bailouts to stay afloat through the lockdown. The important distinction is between governments tracking your movements to trace disease spread, as in Taiwan, or tracking your movements to quash unrelated political dissent and scapegoat immigrants, as in China. This important distinction is between Microfinance Ireland offering 50,000 euro loans to micro enterprises versus $30 million in US bailouts going to Trump campaign donor who has just laid off 95% of his staff. 
The cases in China and in the US illustrate the powerful exploiting a tragedy for their political and financial gain. The rhetorical strategy they use to justify these exploits is pretext. Pretext describes a category of speech that serves to manipulate the audience or conceal motivating reasons. I first became interested in pretext when I worked for the Democratic Party of Georgia. One of my tasks was to write memos responding to current events that found a way to work in talking points from the platform we were currently pushing. It's amazing how you can turn a new housing development into water policy concerns or a school closure into a voting rights issue. That's one way pretext functions in public life. Every institution has their agenda and they find ways to mold the circumstances to fit their goals. As a concept, pretext gives us a framework for distinguishing valid reasons from invalid justifications meant to manipulate us or conceal the agenda. Last summer, the US Supreme Court threw out the court case Department of Commerce v. New York on the basis that the Trump administration's justification for including a citizenship question on the 2020 census was a pretext. They use this term. I hope that citizens will look carefully at their leaders' justifications and similarly throw out the pretexts. To help, I've developed a series of tests for identifying 10 pretext techniques. Some should be familiar, such as scapegoating, including victim blaming, which distracts not only from the responsible party, but also from the motivations. We see this in China's anti-Black racism, Trump's scapegoating of China, then Fauci, then the WHO. Um, another familiar technique is repetition, which creates the illusion of truth effect, where people start to believe what they've heard confidently stated enough times. This propaganda technique, often attribu attributed to Goebbels, is a favorite of current right-wing politicians and media, and today is increasingly used not to establish a truth necessarily, but to see doubt or deny truth as with fake news. Repetition is how discourse constructs meaning, how we come to understand things in our world. We should ask what truth we want to construct for the future, and make sure to repeat those ideals, calling out harmful world building before it becomes reified. I want to give you the discursive superpower of catching these lies with three tools that are highly relevant right now. Shifting justifications, omission, and false promises. First, shifting justifications jump from one justification to another often also throwing out many justifications. China previously used the social credit system as a means to help Chinese people trust each other again, and then as a means to reward good behavior and punish asocial actions. Now they claim it's necessary for containing COVID. They are shifting from one justification to another. Likewise, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban began eroding Hungarian democracy before the pandemic began, with attempts to undermine the judiciary on the basis of anti-EU arguments and his appeals to the country's white Christian heritage and populism. Now, 
he has seized expanded power with the justification of responding to the emergency situation. And of course, shifting justification is Trump's signature strategy, throwing out rationale, seeing what sticks, and then denying having ever offered the failed or discredited justification. The second strategy is omission. This conceals or leaves out essential information that would explain more plausible motives. To steal a line from Adrian Rich, lying is done with words and also with silence. One variation is information overload, where the essential information is lost in the deluge of irrelevant distractions. I call this the excess doctrine. Trump fills US news cycles, Twitter feeds, and dinner table conversations by piling insult upon scandal until the country is numb, the world is numb, to even the clearly impeachable offenses. This clear pattern of staging outrageous distractions for the same day as he plans something unforgivable indicates that excessive extremism is part of a strategy. Consistent need to respond to extreme behavior or situations causes fatigue and we let our guards down. But that is why we need tools to keep the conversation in check. The third tool is false promises, what in my academic work I refer to as unobtaining outcome. False promises look for justifications that don't yield the promised result. Iran launched an app promising that it would detect coronavirus infection. But of course, it didn't have that capacity. Instead, it reported users' personal data and location to the government. The HSC here in Ireland is developing a contact tracing app, and independent developers are proposing others. If Ireland starts using tracing apps, make sure they do what they promise to do, that they aren't false promises and that the country stops using them after COVID. After the plague, we need to be even more alert to make sure prevention provisions are not permanent, to not let the powerful exploit this ancient, anxious rush to recover, and that they don't combine shock doctrine with excess doctrine to keep us confused and overwhelmed. And we cannot be satisfied with insufficient leaders. It takes strength to pull society back into democracy, not the strength of consolidated power, but the strength of resolve to protect democratic ideals. Bertrand Russell had a line about how individuals and governments cannot be trusted to be humane nor seen in a crisis. That's why we need frameworks and tools to help us make sense of the crisis, to not let the pretext stick but to hold our governments and each other accountable so that the COVID-19 pandemic does not become a pretext for eroding democracy by permanently limiting civil liberties and normalizing corruption. We need to ensure that even emergency measures are sane and humane. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Lilith. Uh, that was fabulous. Uh, our, our third speaker, um, is uh, Seamus, please, Seamus, over to you. Uh, thank you so much, Jane. Um, thank you for to everyone at um, Trinity and the Long Room Hub for arranging this, to the fellow panelists who I've 
already learned a lot from and to Columbia University, my own institution for co-sponsoring. Um, you know, I, I sit here, talk to you from the city of New York and you can't help being here in New York thinking just how much the unimaginable has become real in this current moment um, in many ways. I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine having um, people dying in the hallways of hospitals and mass graves. Um, as Lilith mentioned, there's all kinds of unimaginable political things that are going on. Um, uh, not long ago, we were told how we have no money for a range of social programs, um, and we've spent $2.5 trillion in the span of weeks. Um, and one might ask where that money came from. Um, Ireland, in its microfinancing right now, uh, you might ask similar things, that um, where previously there was no funds to help small businesses and everyday people, now suddenly we have them. And I think it's very interesting to see this moment as a moment where things that seemed unimaginable before have suddenly become real. The United States, where we have so many people in prison, and yet those prisoners now have just been let out. And as it turns out, they've been let out without incident. Um, maybe they didn't need to be in prison after all. Um, this would be unimaginable before, and now it's our reality. Um, I'd like to talk today about inequality and not just how there's a crisis in our democracy because of COVID, but that crises in our democracy have helped produce some of the experiences that we have with COVID-19. Um, and in particular, that there have been a series of failures of democracy, um, failures of democracy that we can think of as tied to inequality, but failures that I would articulate as moral failures, failures of our moral commitments to one another and often to the most um, uh, marginalized within the world. And I think it's important to think about patterns of inequality as moral questions. Often we think about them as measurement questions, particularly academics like me, how much inequality is there? What's the difference between men and women? What's the difference between people who are immigrants versus people who are native born? These are important to know, but it, just because we could explain the difference away, it doesn't mean that the difference doesn't exist. And so we might ask ourselves to use this moment to put a kind of mirror up to our democracy and ask, why has it failed us um, in some ways? And what can we do to rebuild it in ways so that when the next COVID comes, and the question is not if, as Julia has said, but when, we may not be influenced in the way that we are today. As a scholar of inequality, uh, what it means is I study the gaps between rich and poor people. Um, I tend to focus on wealthy people and notice how well off they are by definition, um, but in particular, how much more well off they've become in the last 40 years, really in the United States, but across the globe, we're seeing this same pattern again and again and again. And um, rather than sort of be universally experienced, COVID reflects actually the huge patterning of inequality in our society. So uh, for example, the affluent are much more likely to be socially distancing right now. Um, and some of that is simply um, their jobs. So they have the capacity to work in ways that allow them to be on a computer right now. I am at work as um, we have this conversation. This is where I now do my work. Um, but if I were to stock grocery shelves, I couldn't do it via Zoom. Um, I'd be unable to perform my basic tasks in that way. 
And this really highlights the ways in which the wealthy are able to do a series of things. But it's not just that they're able to social distance, it's also that they're fundamentally less at risk of COVID. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the range of comorbidities, the sets of things that put you particularly at risk of dying from COVID, we see that those things are concentrated among the poor. So in the United States, for example, um, uh, the uh, wealthy people are about one-fifth as likely to have lung disease. Or put differently, the poorest of the poor, the bottom 20% of Americans, are five times more likely to have lung diseases than the wealthiest 20% of Americans. Or if we were to look at something like diabetes, which is also a co-risk factor, we'd see that the poor are three times more likely to have diabetes than the rich. And what this means is that the poor, if they're going to get COVID, are much more likely to suffer from it. The other things, not just with social distancing because of work, are that the poor simply, by definition, don't have money. And if you don't have money, there are a range of things that you can't do. One of them is to stock up for food. It's very interesting in my neighborhood. There are sort of two uh, grocery stores. One, Whole Foods, that serves the wealthy members of my neighborhood. And the other, it's called Seatown. It's primarily used by people who have less income. The shelves at Whole Foods, uh, when the crisis first hit, were basically empty. The place had been picked clean. And it was largely because people had walked into that space and they'd taken up the, all the food they could take and they bought it. Seatown, by contrast, which is just around the corner from my apartment, was completely filled with food. There was no shortage to be, to be seen there. And the curiosity was, two, was, I explained, in two ways. The first is that people who shop there don't have the capacity to spend $100 on food. They have to spend $20 at a time. That's the type of money that they have. Um, and then the second is that the rich people in my neighborhood wouldn't shop where the poor people shop. So they didn't bother to go to the sea town to see if it had food because it was so unimaginable. We should think about this as the way that those that, who are more at risk, the people who have to encounter um, the street more frequently because they don't have money to stock up, because they have to go to work in ways that require them to, to be there, they're the least likely to be engaged in social distancing efforts. And so what COVID reveals is that the most vulnerable are put at the most risk. We see this not just with uh, class and economic dynamics, we see this with race in the United States. In the city of Chicago, almost 70% of the cases of uh, COVID deaths are African-Americans. And in the country as a whole, where African-Americans make up only 13% of the country, they may, they're making up close to 33% of the hospitalizations. It really is, when I say COVID is a moral question, I think of this as a moral outrage. And a moral outrage that was brought forth to us by the process of democracy. And so we might ask, what can we do to our democracy to have a kind of community where these kinds of things don't happen? And it's not just class and race, but it's also older people. It, it's true, older people are more susceptible to COVID for a range of reasons, but one of them, often less talked about, is poverty and elder poverty. In the United States, 25 million people who are old are also food insecure. Uh, which means they don't really have enough money to pay for their food, and they're going to be putting themselves at risk because of this. One in five elderly people in Ireland live in deprivation, and those one in five people are going to be particularly at risk in the ways in which they have to live and they have to navigate um, the world 
in the ways in which they may not have the greatest health because of that deprivation. We often say that it's important to return back to normal. And I want to ask, is it? I don't mean by that, that uh, we should just live in this COVID era forever. But as we rethink our democracy, I think it's important for us to ask what it means to return back to normal, what it means to turn back to a situation where poor people are five times more likely to have lung disease, where they're three times more likely to have diabetes, where older people are much more likely than others to live in poverty, where poor people can't stock up for food or can't meet their basic necessities. I think we should question the idea of moving back to normal within a situation of our democracy Instead, return to what I said before, the, where what I said at the very beginning, which was the unimaginable has become real in this moment. And instead of marveling at the unimaginable horrors that have become real in this moment, we might start asking ourselves, what are the unimaginable things that would make for a better world that we might be able to make real at the end of this moment? Thank you. Thank you, Seamus. Again, just hugely insightful. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, I was going to say, last but not least, uh, Peter, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the politics of, uh, of prevention and um, <clears throat> how that varies among uh, the nations that are tackling it, which is effectively to say all the nations of the world, um, not that I will touch on each one of them. Epidemics um, pose the quintessential political problem in a sense in the starkest manner, because on the one hand you have the community that seeks to protect itself and its members from a threat. And on the other hand, you have the individual whose hopes of being treated not just as a disease vector are undermined at a time when everyone poses a threat. Now, it seems to me it stands to reason that this primordially political dilemma would itself be influenced by the political nature of the nation that disease strikes. How do different political systems handle epidemics? Which ones deal with them best? These are the sorts of questions that have become acute in the past two months. <clears throat> now, autocracies can, of course, command their citizens. They exact obedience and sacrifices that more liberal and democratic systems possibly can't demand. But on the other hand, citizens of democratically legitimated regimes are able to buy into the need for making changes. They may accept such sacrifices for the public good, they may be willing to take actions that are hard to require or to compel. It seems to me that it's unclear which sort of regime is going to be best at getting its citizens to toe the line. In the West, we are focused at the moment on the failure of our own regimes to deal very well with the crisis. And we're envious and we're admiring of the Asian nations that seem to have been better prepared. But those Asian nations run a political gamut. On the one hand, you have autocratic Taiwan, uh, sorry, uh, autocratic China, you have technocratic Singapore, you have democratic uh, South Korea and democratic Taiwan. So the question that this poses is, is the capacity to deal with ep epidemics a matter of politics? If you look at history for pointers, the only conclusion we can draw is that epidemic disease has been treated in a lot of different ways. For the first half century of cholera, for example, there was no clarity on what caused it. Different preventative techniques were therefore followed in different nations. Some nations shut down trade, cut off travel, imposed quarantines, and generally limited social intercourse. Other nations, on the other hand, acted on the belief that the disease arose from filth, and they tried large-scale cleansing and hygiene campaigns instead. Once you got into the bacteriological revolution in the late 19th century, knowledge grew of what it was that caused epidemic diseases. 
But even with that knowledge, there was no clear path from scientific knowing to choosing a preventative technique. Autocratic regimes in the 19th century tried quarantine, but so did more democratic regimes. Sanitationist approaches were followed by both the English and the Prussians. And even as recently as the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s, many different tactics were tried. At one extreme, you had nations like Sweden and some states in the United States, as well as Bavaria and Germany, that quarantined seropositives and jailed those who refused to abstain from sex or warned their partners that they were infected. On the other hand, you had the UK and France and the rest of Germany outside of Bavaria, who agreed to merely counsel the infected on how to behave in order to minimize the risk that they posed to others. The political reasons why one preventive tactic was chosen over another approach is very hard to spot in these sorts of general uh, helicopter views of what was done in the past. There weren't really obviously autocratic or evidently democratic ways of tackling the problem. And it seems to me that much the same holds for the COVID epidemic. We don't yet have a medical solution and we're therefore left with the tactics of managing the population as the only tool that we have to impede its spread. Now that basically means varying degrees of quarantine, which is what nowadays we call social distancing and self-isolation. How have these been implemented around the world? Well, basically it seems to me there have been three approaches. First of all, it's been done very loosely or not at all. Secondly, it's been done universally across the board in the form of the kind of lockdown that we have in the UK today. And finally, it's been done in a kind of targeted way. So first, in the nations that have done very little or nothing at all, this has been the response of a motley array of countries. At one extreme, we have what's been called the ostrich coalition, the dictators with their heads in the sand, Nicaragua, Turkmenistan, Belarus, and Brazil under Bolsonaro. But oddly and unexpectedly, in this group, we also find Sweden. The second approach, universal self-isolation, that's what's been imposed in most European nations and in most American states. And finally, the targeted quarantine approach has been used in a variety of Asian nations. This targeted quarantine involves tracking everyone who's suspected of being infected, they're tracked, and at some point, if there's reason to believe that they're infected, they're isolated. So we have a series of quite stark differences in approach to what is in effect a common problem, and the question is why that is. The stay, at open, stay open nations, the nations that haven't really done very much, are in a sense the motliest bunch. It's very hard to know what the real dictators are thinking, but Bolsonaro is responding to many of the same concerns that motivate Trump's pushback against the lockdown that is too prolonged, namely that the shutdown hurts especially his primary political base. Bolsonaro's core constituency cannot work from home, they find self-isolating difficult, they're dependent on wages from day to day to survive, shutting down for them is in effect a solution that's worse than the problem. So the motive here is one of political necessity and a kind of populist appeal to it. The Swedes, who remember are in the same category, have convinced themselves in turn that they are so trusting of each other and their state that they don't need to be forced to do the right thing. That brings us to the targeted quarantiners. These are the nations that are best organized with the best administration and infrastructure. Most of them have had recent experiences of similar epidemics of SARS or avian flu. But let's not kid ourselves. Some of the interventions undertaken in China, South Korea, Taiwan, or Singapore, they're really not for the faint-hearted. Those 
Victims who have symptoms have been mandatorily quarantined in China. They've been picked up and taken away to isolation stations where they have to stay for at least two weeks. Korea has used phone apps that trace your whereabouts. If your phone is out of range or turned off or doesn't indicate movement for a certain period of time, they call. If you don't answer, they come and visit. The question for us in the West is, would citizens in Western nations tolerate that? Well, since they might not, they've in fact had to tolerate something that's arguably much worse in the form of universal lockdown, uh, uh, closed downs, lock lockdowns is the word I'm groping for. And in some ways, the Western response has been a remarkable one. If someone had asked six months ago whether or not the Mediterranean nations would tolerate a complete shutdown, they would unlikely have predicted the outcome that we see today, namely abstinence from social contact in these densely settled and ultra-sociable cultures. In comparison, the British and the Swedish authorities judged, in effect, the opposite. The arguments that the Tories advanced against a lockdown before they changed their minds and went down that route, the arguments that they advanced was precisely that the British would not tolerate those sorts of impositions for long. Now, these were the same leaders who were also perfectly happy to invoke the spirit of the Blitz, but apparently they did not trust their citizens sufficiently to expect them to endure something that, of course, has been much less awful than the Blitz. One of the reasons for this odd approach, at least to start with in the UK, may have been the enormous influence of nudge theory in Great Britain. You remember that David Cameron built an entire nudge unit into number 10? Nudge theory tries to influence behavioral change using only kid gloves. It assumes that citizens of modern democratic states will resist anything more drastic. So we have in effect an odd spectacle. Nations that consider themselves among the most democratic, nations that could in theory have relied on consensual buy-in from their constituencies have in fact chosen a tactic that indicates their leaders did not trust them to tough things out. So in effect, Tory Britain, while it was still pursuing the mitigation strategy and Sweden's authorities, made more or less the same political calculation as Bolsonaro, namely, that there are limits to which you can push your population economically and socially. So the question that we face are, are democracy and populism aiming in the same direction? The populist nations, nations like Sweden and Brazil, have given people an easy solution, open things up and take the consequences. That is in effect what the majority who are not the most medically vulnerable want. The democratic response, as we've seen in most Western nations, has been instead to limit the loss of life, even at the cost of economic pain. That has required a great deal more buy-in from citizens who have been willing, as we all are at the moment, to tough things out. Now, which of these strategies is right is, of course, something that we're not going to know for years to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. Just again, another absolutely fabulous, uh, hugely insightful uh, uh, talk. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, before we go over for Q&A, and I've been harvesting them, uh, we've got a couple to get us going, but also, obviously if anybody would like to ask questions, now is your opportunity. But before we do that, um, uh, we've got the result of our poll. Um, uh, I'm hoping that one of my, as, as it, Francesca or Aoife, will you put the poll results on the screen for us so we can see what they are? So the question was, are you worried about new laws or regulations the government in your country has introduced as a result of COVID-19? 
So a very high proportion are, well, 61%, 48 people said yes, 20% said uh, no, and 19% weren't sure. But there's clearly um, a concern out there, and I think uh, rightly so. And I should make it clear that our audience tonight is a global one. Uh, obviously, many colleagues from New York, many colleagues from across Ireland, but we also are being joined from many people in Brazil and India. So it's really a, a global conversation and obviously our panel has touched um, uh, uh, many points that just resonate around the world at the moment so I'm going to start with two questions I'll take them in groups of two to begin with our first question is from Giovanna who's joining us from Dublin Ireland and her question is I'd love to hear Seamus uh, from Seamus what are the specific changes individuals can do for a new future that would help us make a better new normal. So Seamus, if you can hold that, and we'll come to that in a minute. The second question that um, uh, uh, I have tonight is from Marcus Beresford, who's in County Kildare. Uh, and his question is, trust in politicians in Western democracies was at a low point before the pandemic began. Uh, it's arguable uh, that a number of democracies have been slower and less successful than authoritarian regimes in their response to the pandemic. Has this damaged or will this damage trust, not just in individual politicians, but in democracy as an institution? I'm hoping maybe the entire panel might want to tackle that one. But Seamus, um, would you mind answering Giovanna's question first? And then anybody else should feel free then to join in and then we'll move to Marcus's question. Absolutely, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, um, you know, when, when I say that the unimaginable has become real and, and we should think about what we were told was unimaginable and maybe even impractical before, and might be practical now. I thought, of course, of you know, in the United States, our issue with healthcare and how um, uh, uh, Sanders and uh, Warren had both proposed some version of healthcare, um, which would provide universal healthcare, and people sort of laughed it as just totally unimaginable that we could spend, you know, two to three trillion dollars over ten years on healthcare, and yet we've spent it in three weeks on our other policies. Um, so uh, I think some of it is thinking about um, uh, uh, those things that we think of as impractical may actually be quite doable and that that shift in consciousness is important. I also think though that, um, you know, I speak as a, you know, probably not surprising to many, a member of the left, um, that the left has abandoned um, moral uh, positions, uh, that it's largely been hesitant to talk about um, the problems of society in moral terms, and that we need to reclaim that kind of moral language, and to some degree, moral outrage over things like inequality. Um, that the solutions that we've tended to focus on in terms of inequality have been highly technocratic. Um, so thinking about questions of measurements, testing, and all kinds of things like this. And instead, I think we need to reclaim a little bit of moral outrage and say, what do we owe each other in a fundamental sense? And I think the answer to that is a lot. We owe a lot to each other in terms of the fundamental respect of their human dignity. And we need to think about what it is that we have as our moral commitment to other people and how it is that policies can enact that. And rather than get swayed by these technocratic arguments that it's too expensive 
hopefully we can have these moments of realization in this moment that actually the world is transformable in fairly profound ways in fairly short order um, if we have the will to do it. And so uh, that would be my answer to the, I think it was Giovanna's question here from Dublin about what it is that individuals can do. They can begin to imagine what it is they want and not accept some of the technocratic responses as to whether or not they're feasible. Yeah, thank you very much, Seamus. Well, here in Ireland, we uh, got the healthcare system that we've been asking for for decades at the stroke of a pen. It literally happened overnight. Um, would anybody else in the panel like to come in on this or, or we'll move to Marcus Bereford's question around trust, uh, which is obviously such a big question. I don't know, um, uh, Peter, would you kick that, sort of begin that discussion and then I'm hoping others might, might join it? Join in. So it's basically trust in politicians at a low point. Um, do you think that the COVID-19 will have destroyed uh, a trust, not just in individuals, but in democracy as an institution? Well, there, there are two aspects to the trust. Um, they're trusting each other and they're trusting um, our politicians or, or more broadly our authorities. Uh, whether we will end up trusting each other as we come out of that, that's sort of a psychological issue, isn't it? I mean, when we first venture out, you know, the person who's not wearing a mask, is that trustable? The person we step into the elevator with, uh, the person we come too close to in the subway, you know, these are all almost, um, you know, hackle-raising issues that we're all going to be dealing with on a sort of psychological level. My guess would be that we probably will take um, our time before we squeeze into big crowds again uh, anytime in, in the near future. But the question is really about uh, trusting upwards. Um, and there, again, there are two aspects to that. Does the government trust us? Do we trust uh, the government or the, the authorities? And in, in a sense, what I tried to uh, raise with the Swedish issue is that the, the argument that the Swedes are making is that the government trusts its people sufficiently that it doesn't have to force them with cudgels or police or uh, laws to do what the Swedes inherently know is right, which is to keep their distance and not get too, I mean, not get too close, not go out and not mingle more than they have to. And in other words, do the kinds of things that elsewhere apparently requires a more active intervention. So the government apparently trusts its citizens. Conversely, do the citizens trust their authorities? And that, of course, is a question, I think, fundamentally of competence. First and foremost, if the authorities prove themselves to be competent, and convince us that they can give us some measure of security, then I think we you know, would be much more likely to trust them than um, is otherwise the case. Um, so some nations have obviously been a great deal more competent uh, than others. And I think it's fair to say that those where the authorities have not proven terribly competent are the ones that are gonna have the hardest time winning the trust of their populations and trying to get them to do uh, what they what they want them to do uh, once these things start tapering off again. Thank you very much, Peter. I don't know if Ahuvia or Lilith. Lilith, do you want to come in, please? Yes. Well, the competence of the governments will absolutely be an interesting role to consider. I think the government's ability to shape the narrative is going to be essential. And you can see that already happening in China with how the CCP is signaling out and scapegoating those of African connections, basically anti-Black racism, to shift the blame from the CCP's role in the pandemic to this group that had 
nothing to do with it. And similarly, in the United States, you can see how the Liberate protests, for example, are shifting the focus away from the Trump administration onto individual governors. And I think that the way that the national parties or corporations manage to shift the narrative will be determinant. And um, on the note of not only trusting politicians, but politicians trusting, I think we can already see a turn in trust with Boris Johnson, who has new respect for the NHS. Thanks, Lilith. Ahuvia, do you want to come in here? Ahuvia, we can't hear you. Can you unmute yourself, please? We can't hear you. Uh, right. I would, I would simply say there is no algorithm for trust. Uh, trust in politicians is what uh, uh, has been, on the one hand, eroded, but it's also a process which has allowed Bolsonaro and Trump and Orban and, I would have to say, Johnson as well, uh, uh, to, to rise. Uh, and. To think that we have a, 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 a magical object out there that uh, of, we could somehow uh, fulfill the conditions for its existence. Uh, I, I think we live in a stochastic universe in a much more precarious way in which we would have to every moment reassess and commit to values each and uh, every one of us. And while I uh, very much uh, uh, sympathize and would want to go along with the kind of uh, 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 processes and techniques and characteristics that, for example, uh, Lilith has very helpfully uh, provided for us, all I can say is uh, in uh, some of the offices, for example, in number 10 Downing Street, uh, sit some very senior advisors who are uh, uh, perhaps unscrupulous, but very, very smart. And they would always think of how do we stay one step ahead of that public thinking about uh, uh, whether they trust us or not. That leaves us with a very frustrating, but nonetheless realistic, I would almost say scientifically uh, 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 realistic uh, 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 and truthful uh, pursuit. Where is that atom or that subatomic particle in, uh, in, 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 in the object that we're looking at it? We sometimes simply cannot know. And it's a matter of uh, not applying a single algorithm because uh, circumstances change so much. And the one thing that I can say is uh, hold on uh, to our values and understand that we do live in a stochastic, precarious, moral uh, and political universe, um, that uh, <laughs> is no easy answer. I recognize that. Thank you, Ahuvia. Um, we've got lots of questions coming in here and also some lovely feedback, some, you know, a lot of compliments to the panel, so, which is always great to, um, uh, to always great to see. So I've got two questions. Uh, I've got Leonard uh, Hobbs, who's a colleague in Trinity. He works in Trinity Research Innovation. He's joining us from Kildare. And his question, and, and it's one, Leonard, that we sort of began to touch on uh, at our last Behind the Headlines, but it's really, how does the panel see uh, COVID-19 the COVID-19 crisis interacting with the climate crisis, 
will they collaborate or compete? And if the latter, will there be a winner? So in other words, are we seeing a head-to-head -head here? So that's from Leonard. And then another question from Tiago uh, Moyano, who joins us from the University of Sao Paulo uh, in Brazil. Uh, Tiago, it's really lovely that you're here this evening, uh, delighted. Uh, and his question is, I'd like to hear more from the speakers on whether they think national borders and nationalism will become even stronger with the pandemic, considering that the spread of the disease seems to be traveling rapidly from the global north to the global uh, south. Uh, and uh, there doesn't seem to be consensus among a number of political leaders uh, worldwide. Uh, so um, I don't know, anyone want to start with either of those questions? Okay, Ahuvia and then uh, uh, Seamus. <clears throat> there we go, can everybody hear me? Uh, on COVID and the climate crisis, uh, I think uh, Seamus pointed out that a lot of the conditions that uh, allow COVID to affect people are, are not the virus, they are man-made. And indeed, uh, governments knew the risk well before that. And I can just uh, uh, remind ourselves of what some sociologists, for example, Bruno Latour says, uh, that uh, agency in this world involves not just uh, objects out there, a gun that happens to be able to capable of firing a bullet and someone who's capable of firing a trigger, but that it's, it's, it's an interactive process. And to some degree, we are very much uh, part, uh, democracies in a sense, are very much part in the conditions they uh, uh, produced of uh, 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 the crisis that we find ourselves. And in that sense, we're also, and this is far more explicit, of course, we're also, uh, agents in the crisis of uh, uh, the climate and what we're facing. So I, I think what we have to, in a sense, recognize is that we can't just say COVID is the enemy and the whole rhetoric of uh, enemies and, and warfare, and we're now just defending ourselves. We're, in a sense, inherently part of the problem. I, I may be a little more pessimistic than Seamus about whether we can actually uh, uh, adapt and change ourselves, but I hope he's right and I'm wrong in that. Seamus, please. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, a question of what are the institutions that we can build coming out of this that will help us with other sets of crises and that um, most crises that we face, not all, but most that we face as a humanity um, have, you know, probably not surprising for me as a sociologist to say this, they have social and institutional roots. So, um, you know, we know well that famines are not just about the shortage of few food. They're about the distribution of food and the choices that we make about that distribution. And so, um, uh, you know, classically, of course, the Irish famine was a choice that was made um, uh, primarily in England. Uh, uh, but so too today, we have famines across the world that are choices that we make. And the question will become, um, how do we relate to one another at the end of this? Uh, I think Peter had said that there, it's not unlikely that there'll be some degree of fear when we see one another, um, when someone isn't wearing a mask or when they walk too close, that we may shudder. And what this crisis requires is for many of us to act in ways not to protect ourselves, but to protect others. Um, uh, so particularly for the young people who are listening, um, uh, the students there, you know, the, the risks that they have of, um, 
of uh, uh, experiencing COVID-related mortality is extremely low. And yet we're asking them to make huge sacrifices in order to protect others. If that becomes a norm, I think we have something to build upon. And if it becomes a resentment, we have something else. Um, I think in terms of nationalism, it's, it's very interesting to think about. I mean, the question from Brazil is important because as we in the North, Northern Hemisphere move out of flu season and as people in the Southern Hemisphere move into it, the structured risk of COVID is going to shift pretty radically. And um, you know, we'll see our risk increase again sometime in November when we enter flu season as just as the Southern Hemisphere is coming out of that risk. But I think it's important to recognize that for all the problems of nationalism, there's some benefits to nationalism. And that it, sometimes national sentiment, um, if it can lead to forms of collective action can be beneficial. And one of the questions, and I, I'm not the right person to speak on this because it's not my area of expertise, but I do think it's interesting to ask when um, that kind of national, nationalist sentiment, by which I mean commitment to other people who are within the bounds of the nation can be successfully mobilized in order to help us in the moment of a pandemic like this. Maybe Peter, do you want to come in here and, and reflect on that? Again, you just unmute. Uh -oh. oh, that's it, we okay. can hear you. All right, I am unmuted, okay. Yeah. All right, um, let, let me uh, take on the nationalism question. Um, and at the risk of sounding uh, naive, I think the answer is in the short term, it may encourage nationalism and in the long term that it won't. Um, scapegoating is, we can all find all kinds of examples and you know many of them are mutually contradictory in the sense that probably every group is being blamed somewhere by someone for the cause of, of spreading this disease. And so in a sense, it's an equal opportunity uh, scapegoating. Our colleague, uh, our colleague, um, those of us who are historians, our colleague Samuel Cohen has just published an enormous book, 800 pages, which very counterintuitively argues that throughout history, from the plague and leprosy down to the, to the present, this whole idea that contagious diseases lead to scapegoating has been vastly exaggerated. And that in fact, it brings as much brings people together as it uh, drives them apart. Now, whether that's going to be the case here or not, uh, I don't, I, I can't of course quite say, but my guess would be that one of the main distinctions that we should keep in mind here is between transmissible and contagious diseases. And with transmissible diseases where it takes a purposeful act to convey the disease and where the disease is limited to a smaller group of people, it's much easier to scapegoat. With contagious diseases, where all you have to do is sneeze or cough, or even just breathe to pass it on, everybody is potentially a victim and everybody is potentially a, 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 a transgressor, if by, if by that you mean the person from whom somebody else gets the a disease. So it, it, it is sort of, um, it, we're all in, in the same boat in, the, in, a, in a different way than we are with um, transmissible diseases. If you look at the 19th century international sanitary conferences that were scheduled with monotonous regularity throughout the 19th century, bringing together nations from all over the globe to try to deal with various forms of diseases, um, I don't know that anyone has done it, but I will bet you could construct an argument that in effect a lot of the groundwork for 20th century global institutions was laid in these sorts of getting people together, facing the same problems uh, in the same place. So there's a kind of sort of global, um, you know, cooperation that evolves out of this. And one other example of that is 
the globalization of science, which has been absolutely extraordinary. You see, when you look back even just at the SARS disease, which now, you know, 20 years ago, it took three months, I think, to DNA, whatever it is people do, DNA analyze um, the, the virus then. And a lot of the information back then uh, was not, was withheld in the hopes of prestigious publications in, in the paywall journals. Uh, this time it took, I think, three weeks and every stitch of information that I know about has been slapped up on the web. The cooperation has just been absolutely extraordinary. It is one of the great silver linings of this epidemic to show the extent to which scientists can cooperate with each other when they really are facing a problem that needs everybody on deck. Thank you very much, um, uh, uh, Peter. I'm going to take a couple more questions just because they're coming in thick and fast. So the next question is from Sahar, who is with us in Trinity, uh, and it's for Lilith. Uh, what do you suggest um, uh, response from populations should be in the face of infringement of civil and political rights by governments? Protests can't work. We've seen the disaster in the US with protests. How best are citizens meant to organize in such a scenario? So Lilith, if you could just hold that. And then I've got another question here from David Armitage. Now the one David, the David Armitage I know is the David Armitage at Harvard. David, I don't know if this is you, but anyway, uh, uh, David is asking, uh, recent years saw a rupture between democracy and technocracy. Uh, we've had enough of uh, 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 experts, um, but the current crisis has abruptly forced their convergence again. In other words, following the science, just picking up on what Peter was saying. Do the panel think uh, this will be a shotgun marriage or a long-term relationship? Great questions. Lilith, would you mind um, uh, answering the specific one, but feel free to comment on uh, the other one. Thank you, Sahar. I suspect you are already doing the most important thing, and that is talking to people. And talking to people not only in your own social circle, but beyond and in other countries, informing yourself about alternatives. Because one of the tests that I didn't talk about, but I think is very important, is the false choice, where um, governments or corporations will say it's either A or B, and that's why we're going with A. And if you look beyond, you can see the C and the D, and you can know that there are more options. Of course, voting, being a participant in the voting process and talking to other constituents is important. If you have the opportunity to write an article for the paper or a blog post for the hub, and you can talk about the ways in which your work and your particular view of the world shows you a sharper truth of what is happening, then that's a great way to get people to see the political situation um, from another perspective with other considerations than just what those in power want us to see. And the question of whether it's going to be, um, was it a shotgun union uh, or long-term? Many of the questions that people have around civil liberty infringements and COVID forget that we have already signed away many of our privacy rights in downloading apps and having Google. And we are already in a long-term union. You only have to look at what happened with Cambridge Analytica in the last US presidential election to see that the two are heavily entwined. And I have hope that we can um, start to pull that apart and reclaim our privacies. I'm curious what the others say. 
would anybody else like to come in there? Peter, please go ahead and then Seamus. On, on privacy, yes, um, I would like to, I totally agree with Lilith that we've already given up our privacy. I doubt we're ever going to get, get it back. And if you go and look at your, um, your own timeline on Google Maps, you know, what is it that Google doesn't really know about you that these uh, tracing, contact tracing apps would do other than a bit more granularity? You know, I, I, I think most people are willing to give that up if the payoff is right. And I think more generally speaking, privacy is in a sense a false god in the sense that privacy is an indirect means of achieving what you really want, which is that there be no consequences to the information that is now public knowledge. As long as there aren't any consequences, privacy is sort of irrelevant. You know, if you're trying to hide the fact that you're gay because you're afraid you're going to be persecuted, then privacy makes some sense. But if you're not persecuted for being gay, then privacy is sort of irrelevant because of a personal thing. But anyway, be that as it may, can I also just say something about the experts and the um, uh, and the politicians? Uh, I would guess that the experts are not only here to stay, but they've already arrived. I mean, look, if you look at this demographically, among 20-year-olds, being a nerd is sexy. The nerds have won. This is a demographic shift. Once a 20-year-old or 40-year-old, uh, they will want experts. Experts are clearly, uh, the, the, the dislike of experts is a, a, a generational issue and the generation that doesn't like experts is on its way out. I think we can keep going with questions. I don't, I don't need to jump in. I was gonna say something that Peter did. Sorry, me. Sorry, apologies. Um, okay, I've got two more questions. Um, uh, one from Natalie Harrower, uh, who's in Dublin in the Digital Repository of Ireland. And hers is, I think most people can agree that Trump's ridiculous response is dangerous and that we can identify uh, the slippage, changing targets, deflection uh, into other crises, etc. But do what do we do about it from a political uh, history perspective when he continually gets away with it and it doesn't really seem to matter? Uh, if we identify the problem. So it, that, that's uh, Natalie's question uh, about Trump and um, uh, uh, the getting away with it. Um, I've got another question from somebody who's joining us via the Facebook line, live stream. It's Dan Baker. Dan's a Columbia alum. He's uh, calling in from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And his question may be at once unavoidable and unanswerable. So here is his question. Do the lessons cited by our panel um, support my fear that American democracy is at risk and that the US under Trump and the Republican Senate is at risk of sliding towards authoritarianism. I don't know if, if Seamus, uh, 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 you're sitting there in New York, uh, if you, you'd like to respond to that, but anybody should feel free to come in uh, here. Maybe we'll start with you, Seamus. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to, to respond to that. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, democracy isn't just at risk, it's been at risk for quite some time. I mean, uh, we have to remember that it's been a you know very long time since, um, uh, in fact, only one recent election where a Republican uh, presidential candidate won the majority of the vote. Um, and um, there, the structure of American democracy has often been one that sought to protect the important parts of the democracy from the people. Um, so um, uh, historically, uh, you know, we, we have sort of three major branches of government here, 
the Senate for most of American history was not directly elected. It was really only until the beginning of the 20th century. The presidency was not initially directly elected and still is not directly elected if we rely upon an electoral college system. And the courts, of course, are not elected either. And so I think, you know, um, uh, when thinking about the risks to American democracy, the questions I would ask is, what do we mean by a democracy? What kind of democracy is it? Because there are multiple forms of democracy of which the United States has a very peculiar one, um, a peculiar one that often seeks to um, uh, protect the American uh, uh, political process from popular influence. We need to remember that many things that seem totally impossible in American political processes are actually highly popular within the overall population. So whether that be access for women to um, abortion rights, whether that be um, gun control, um, in my own recent research, uh, access to things like comprehensive sexuality education, all of these, these things have wide bipartisan support across the country and yet they never get realized. And so for me, um, I think American democracy has always been both incredibly stable, but also incredibly fragile. And by stable, I mean stable insofar as institutions of power have long been reified within processes of American democracy and fragile, meaning that the voices of um, uh, broad swaths of the American people um, have often gone unheard. And so, you know, when I ask what is the unimaginable that could become real at the end of this, the, one of the answers to me would be, um, how is it that we could make American democracy more democratic? Um, because uh, to return to the core question, is American democracy at risk? I would say yes, and it's long been at risk. Um, and so the question becomes, what do we do about that now? And do you want to say anything about Trump? You may prefer not to. I prefer not to. I don't, I don't like to talk about him. I don't really watch him or listen to him very much. Uh, he gets a lot of attention, and I, I, I'm, I'm not going to add to it. Right. That's absolutely fine. Ahuvia, please. Thank you. Uh, just three quick points. First, uh, I think well before COVID, Yanis uh, uh, Varoufakis uh, pointed out, and I hope he's wrong, but there's some logic to his argument, that uh, a certain type of the age of democracy, which follows uh, in the wake of uh, the great Second World War, is uh, winding down, unfortunately. I hope he's wrong. Um, the second point is that much more fundamentally, uh, democracy, in order to be democracy, and there's all sorts of uh, 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 theoretical, philosophical, and uh, in uh, uh, politics and uh, political philosophy arguments about that, which I won't go into, but democracy is fundamentally an at-risk regime. Uh, and uh, to close down that risk is uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, a thing that authoritarian regimes like to do and doesn't always agree with uh, democracy, but that means living with a certain type of, of risk. And the third point that I want to make about uh, remedying the kind of things that uh, 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 responses to, to Trump, well, it's to look not to uh, 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 Trump, by looking to Trump, it's in a sense already too late, but to the kind of ills, to the kind of inequalities, to the kind of injustices and vulnerabilities, the kind of wrongs, as uh, one person puts it, that uh, 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 create the substrate 
on which uh, someone like uh, Trump and many others, um, Bolsonaro uh, and Orban and uh, all sorts of other uh, unsavory uh, regimes uh, thrive. So in a sense, let's uh, treat the, uh, the, 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 the causes, not the symptoms. Thank you, Ahuvia. Lilith or Peter? Yes, please, Lilith, go ahead. In response to Natalie and Dan, I think regardless of what you think of democracy at a national level in the US, there are great instances of functional democracy at a local level. The last place I lived in the US was the East Bay, San Francisco East Bay, and Richmond, for example, has participatory um, budgeting, which is just an essence of modern democracy, I think. And also multi-parties were not stuck at the local level in the duopoly of the Democratic and the Republican Party. And you can see leadership in what to do now from the governors forming coalitions on the coasts. We can have other political formulations than just the top down. And I think there's hope there. Thank you. Unless you want to get in, Peter, do you want to add anything here? No? Okay, well, we'll move on to, we'll try and squeeze in uh, just a couple more questions. So I've got one from uh, uh, Dennis uh, Lebhol in New York City. Um, and his question, I think, is one for you, Peter. Uh, would you comment more fully on the policy in Sweden, which does not curtail social interaction at the expense of the basic right to live of the vulnerable populations? And then we have one from Jake Erickson, who's a colleague in Trinity, who's joining us on Facebook. And his question is, recent primary elections in Wisconsin saw people risking health and social distancing recommendations to vote under tenuous circumstances. How do we take into account practices of voting and voting rights as we consider democracy in to the practical short term? So Peter, can we start with you? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, so this, the the Swedish tactics are are well odd to say the least, and um, and they're odd not just because this is a country that, in every other respect, does not follow the policy of allowing citizens to make up their own minds about what they should be doing. Um, this is a very top-down country that legislates and regulates really everything. So why it is that they're deciding uh, to leave things uh, up to citizen choice in this particular matter is you know, is peculiar to say, to say the least. Um, but it's also slightly contradictory because on the one hand, the Swedish authorities claim that they're not aiming to get herd immunity. Herd immunity is what, you know, the Tories also thought they were after uh, in the beginning, whereby you allow people to interact more normally than you would in a lockdown situation. And therefore you get a quicker spread of the disease in the population. You therefore get a spike of, uh, of the cases and uh, ultimately fatalities earlier than you otherwise would, but the payoff is that you then get, if there is immunity, and we of course don't know that yet uh, for this disease, we can't even measure antibodies yet in any reliable fashion, and we don't even know whether or not having had the disease conveys immunity. But if there is immunity, you then get uh, herd immunity, meaning that uh, the R0 drops to lower than it otherwise would be, and and the disease doesn't spread. So it's, it's a sort of a tactical decision to allow a certain higher rate of immediate mortality in hopes of getting a long-term decrease in mortality. Whereas the countries that shut down, of course, while we're waiting for a vaccine, there is no way of getting out of the shutdown except by 
taking the risk of a spike in infections when people start interacting with each other again. So it's sort of a question of distributing the mortality. Do you want a lot of it now or do you want to sort of push it off into the future at such time as when we may have a cure or um, a, a vaccine? Now, the Swedes, in fact, claim that that's not what they're after, that they're not after herd immunity, because herd immunity has sort of developed a sort of bad aftertaste because it involves lots of people dying. They also claim that one of the, the, the parts of their strategy was to make sure that the most vulnerable parts of the population, which is above all to say the elderly, uh, were protected. They've done a miserable job of that, but every country has done a miserable job of that. You know, the, the horrendous carnage that's been taking place in the old age homes uh, across the uh, Western world is, is, is going to be one of the scandals that comes out of this at the end and, and heads will um, dangle in the wind, I think, um, before this is over. The, the you know, Canada's uh, death rate, I think 50% of the deaths in Canada so far have been in old age homes. And, you know, in the US, we've been reading about the sort of the, the cases of, uh, of the nursing homes in New Jersey and, and of course the one in Seattle. And, uh, you know, you get similar stories from France and Spain and, and uh, the UK, well, the UK is not even counting or has only just started counting the deaths in the old age homes. So there is, there's a huge scandal uh, brewing here. And um, um, so, so the Swedes are, are running a sort of slightly contradictory policy of claiming not to be after herd immunity and allowing people to voluntarily sort of mingle and lead more normal lives than they otherwise would. Uh, but of course, if you allow them to do that, and if they don't follow social distancing, then you do end up getting a broader spread of the disease than you otherwise would. And you are in fact practicing herd immunity, even if that's what you say you're not following. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. And obviously uh, we have exactly the same story in Ireland in terms of the uh, old people's homes. It's, it's absolutely disgraceful what's, what's happening uh, as well. Um, does anybody want to respond to Jake's uh, question about the voting practices and in fact, you know, what that means? Lilith, please go ahead. I'm so glad that Jake Erickson asked this question because the story in Wisconsin is like a movie. The Republican lawmakers were fighting with the Democratic governor to try to keep this election going despite the public health risks. And it was just cities and the governor level fighting against the goal was not actually to hold the Democratic primary. I think lots of people were focusing on that. It was about a special election for the state Supreme Court. And the Republicans wanted to keep a Republican judge in power. And then we can ask questions about um, the democratic process of that. But so many people came out to the polls despite voter suppression, similar to what Brian Kemp did to steal the election from Stacey Abrams in Georgia last election, that the Democratic judge actually won. Even Republican voters were so mad at the Republican lawmakers that they ended up failing. So despite suppressing the vote and risking public health, the Republicans were not able to use this as a means to maintain power. And I think that that should be a powerful lesson for lawmakers going forward and can also show the people that it's so important that we have this vote. People are willing to risk their lives to have this vote. We obviously need to look for other solutions such as mail-in ballots. So please fund the USPS. 
Thanks, Lilith. You know, folks, we're really almost out of time. So there's still lots of questions piling in, but sadly, we're not going to be able to actually uh, answer them. But, but obviously, uh, I'd like to give the final word now to our panelists. And if I could just invite each of you, uh, if there's one message, and again, we're going to be very brief here, that you would like our colleagues to leave their Zoom rooms uh, 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 with, what might that be? Ahuvia, I'm going to start with you and the order in which people spoke. So if you just had one key message from tonight, what would it be? Unmute, please. I'm afraid it's uh, pretty much what I kind of said before, but I'll rephrase it. Just keep swimming. Just, can you hear me? Yes, quickly. Just keep swimming. Just keep <laughs> swimming. Uh, there is no algorithm to this. There is no rule book to this. Um, the forces that would contravene uh, and use uh, uh, pandemics in a variety of ways, which we have no time to discuss, uh, in order to undermine fundamental aspects of democracy are there. And they are often very determined, very smart, and very adept at uh, using publics. And it's just a question of working very hard, looking to values without any single prescription. There are various, numerous tactics, but uh, without any single prescription, just working hard to preserve not just our uh, lives, not just our economies, but uh, perhaps as uh, Seamus was saying, to correct those great wrongs uh, that are part of the foundation of this uh, terrible cir circumstances. Thank you, Ahubia. I'm going to have to cut you off there just because we're completely out of time. Lilith, in just in a sentence, please. Look for the pretext. Look for how COVID is being used as a pretext to take away your civil liberties and how civil liberties are being used as a pretext to astroturf this imaginary Greek uprising. Look for your own pretext as well. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Seamus. Uh, COVID is not just a medical disease. It also reflects our social inequalities. And to solve this, we don't just need a vaccine. We need to talk about and address the range of inequalities in our society. Otherwise, the next COVID will be equally as deadly. Yeah, thank you very much, Seamus. And last but not least, Peter. First world, the developed world will get through this one way or another, but we haven't seen the worst yet because the third world, the global south, has yet to be hit. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. Before we thank um, our uh, uh, panelists, I just have a couple of very quick announcements. This Behind the Headlines discussion launches a five-part series called Rethinking Democracy in an Age of Pandemics, which is a collaboration between the Trinity Long Room Hub and the Society of Fellows in the Heyman Centre for the Humanities at Columbia. So the first of that five-part online series is on nations and borders and it will take place on Wednesday the 29th, this Wednesday at 4.30.
uh, um, it's a closed event, but it will be live streamed through the Trinity Long Room Hub Facebook page. And obviously, uh, join us on Facebook. Uh, we'd love it if you did. Uh, there'll be details on our website. And as I say, there'll be five of those seminars and Seamus will be back again uh, talking. Uh, I think it's again, it's about inequality. Um, our weekly blog is there. So the humanities and other reflections on the coronavirus pandemic. And then to invite you all to a fellow in focus discussion with Pramesh Lalu on the 30th of April at 1.15. Again, the Zoom link is on our web page. So I just simply want to end by uh, thanking a number of colleagues in the Trinity Long Room Hub who make these events run so smoothly. A big thank you to Aoife, Francesca, uh, Katrina. We can't operate without them. They're absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you, our audiences. You've dialed in or you've tuned in from around the world, either into the Zoom room or um, uh, uh, through the uh, Facebook feed. Uh, thank you so much for spending the last hour and a half with us, whether you're in your bedrooms, your kitchens, in my case, on the porch, wherever you are, um, stay well. Uh, it's, I mean, the world is a dangerous place at the moment. And um, I, I obviously, it's lovely that you're with us, uh, uh, but, 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 but do take care. I'd like you now to join me in thanking our four panelists for just the most extraordinary conversation. Um, I think we've all learned a huge amount and the variety of perspectives and the insights that they have uh, brought will give us all food for thought. Uh, 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 and I really am so grateful uh, to them. And if we can thank them in the customary way. Good night, everybody, and take care. Bye. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.